1: You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business. With no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started, visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro dot com. and use code Vox. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Barrara. I mean, when you think about what were your
0: early conceptions of the American story, you know, usually you're thinking about John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I think that presidents kind of tell us who we are. <laughs> they tell us what we stand for, they tell us where we're going. And they fill that gap of what is our national identity.
1: That's Ben Rhodes. He served in the Obama administration for all eight years, like my previous guest, Valerie Jarrett. He's also the co-host of Pod Save the World from Crooked Media and the author of the best-selling book, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Sometimes, for me, foreign policy can be an intimidating topic to tackle. But I speak with Ben about the Iran nuclear deal, which he worked on. And we discuss the role of presidential rhetoric, including the most recent presidents, and their very different speaking styles. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You can tell a lot about somebody by the company they keep, and also by the company they don't keep. That's why I put this right in my Twitter bio. Banned by Putin. Fired by Trump. And now we've put it on a t-shirt. To get yours... Head to shop.cafe.com for your very own Banned by Putin, Fired by Trump t-shirt. And even more, stay tuned merchandise. That's shop.cafe.com.
0: Hi there, this is Cheryl Carmichael, California. So
1: I've read that the Office of Special Counsel has recommended that Ms. Kellyanne Conway be dismissed for her repeated violations of the Hatch Act. And the president says, no,
0: I'm not doing that. So who enforces the Hatch Act?
1: Or does it just crawl in a corner somewhere and die? Thank you. Cheryl, thanks for your question. And Milgram and I talked about this a little bit, and I think it's in the Cafe Insider podcast sample that was in the Stay Tuned feed this week. But further to your question, who enforces the Hatch Act? It's the Office of Special Counsel. Now, you could argue that the Office of Special okay. Counsel does not have a lot of teeth that it can make recommendations and it can make pronouncements and it can issue reports, all of those things it does. But like a lot of other things, including security clearances or anything else, in these circumstances, if the recommendation to fire someone is not accepted by the president, there's not a whole hell of a lot that the OSC can do. In fact, we got a related question about the Hatch Act from a Twitter user, Gene Sinodinos, who asks, question, if the OSC says that Kellyanne Conway has broken the law, why the heck isn't she being arrested? the way it sounds, the recommended recourse is firing, and that's not exactly a legal remedy. Love the podcast. Hashtag Curious Minds. Hashtag Ask It's another good question. And people have to remember that there are you know, two kinds of laws. There's lots of things that people can do that are contrary to law, like, for example, discriminating against someone in the workplace, speeding, or all sorts of other things, but they are not criminal in nature. In other words, the penalty for those things has been determined by Congress or a state legislature not to be punishable by criminal indictment and enforceable in the courts in that particular way. Lots of things are violations, and you're not supposed to do them, but the remedy is often civil damages or some other disciplinary action. So if Kellyanne Conway, as it's been determined by the OSC, has broken that particular law, there's no basis for arrest because it's not criminal. The law requires lots of things. Not all of them have a criminal penalty, and this is an example of that. This question comes from Twitter user Scott Monty, who asks, what are your thoughts on the DOJ stepping in to object to Paul Manafort's placement in Rikers? Did the state of New York have to respond in kind to the request? Hashtag AskPreet. Scott, thanks for your question. You're referring to news reports in the last few days that Paul Manafort, who has not only been charged in federal court, but also been charged by the Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance for various tax and other violations, now that he has to face justice in the state court here, as it typically happens when you have both the federal charge and a state charge. In this case, the federal charge has essentially gone first. Uh, There was a conviction and then a guilty plea, and now he's not done. So typically, you get transported uh, to the jurisdiction where the next case has to unfold, and that's here in Manhattan. Now, ordinarily, in my experience, and I have a lot of experience with this, the prisoner or inmate who's facing prosecution in some other local jurisdiction gets taken into the custody of that local agency, and usually is confined, if the person is confined, to the normal correctional facility where other people charged in that jurisdiction are housed. And in this case, as I've written about in my book, uh, It's Not a Pleasant Place by any stretch of the imagination, is the correctional institution uh, called Rikers Island. Ordinarily, that's where someone like Paul Manafort would be spending his time. As we learned this past week, very high up in the Justice Department, all the way up to the Deputy Attorney General, Jeffrey Rosen, who replaced Rod Rosenstein, seemed to intervene on behalf of this one inmate, who has a very famous name, Paul Manafort, and wrote to the local prosecutors, making the point that Paul Manafort perhaps should be uh, remaining in federal custody. So as I understand it, at the time of this recording, he will be held at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. Now, there are various arguments about how Paul Manafort, because he is particularly notorious and particularly well-known for his own safety— should be accommodated in a particular way and not be sent to Rikers Island. I don't yet know the merits of that argument, but it is highly unusual. I've never heard of such a thing. And what's in particular highly unusual is that someone uh, way up in the food chain, the second most powerful person in the entire Justice Department, would be weighing in on something that's usually left up to local authorities and the Bureau of Prisons. It's odd and unusual, and I've never heard of an example of this. And... As one of my former colleagues from SDNY has suggested on social media, it may be something worth looking at by the House Judiciary Committee. And Milgram and I will be discussing this further on the Insider Podcast this coming Monday. My guest this week is Ben Rhodes. He's the former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. Ben was responsible for national security communications, global engagement programs, public diplomacy, and speechwriting. Ben was also one of the earliest members of the Obama campaign, joining him in Chicago as a senior speechwriter and later foreign policy aide as a 29-year-old. Ben gave me his assessment of our current situation in Iran and his take on some of the Democratic 2020 hopefuls. That's coming up. Stay tuned. I take safety seriously, especially when it comes to my home. Did you know that only one in five homes have home security? It can be difficult to find an effective system that doesn't break the bank. And most companies really don't make it easy. That's why SimpliSafe is my top choice, hands down. Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24-7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost. And they make it easy on you. No contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. Plus, it's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling, no wonder it's won a ton of awards from the likes of CNET and the New York Times Wirecutter. So visit simplysafe.com/preet, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Go now to simplysafe.com/preet, so they know that we sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. It's allergy season again, but it was also allergy season a couple of months ago, and won't it be allergy season again a couple of months from now? Thankfully, Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Molecule's technology goes beyond HEPA filtration. It captures and completely destroys the full spectrum of indoor air pollutants. In a study of 49 allergy sufferers presented at the American College of Asthma, Allergy and Immunology, Molecule's technology provided dramatic, statistically significant symptom reduction within a week of use. And one customer even said that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule's technology creates a complete and clean air purification experience, all in a sleek, solid aluminum shell. But most importantly, Molecule's technology is verified by science and tested by real people. Molecule has already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. My Molecule arrived quickly in a compact package. It was easy to set up and takes up very little space in my office. Most important to me, it's quiet, so it doesn't distract from my work while it's doing its work. For $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot and enter the code Preet at checkout. Molecule, the air you were meant to breathe, is finally here. Ben Rhodes, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Preet. Congratulations on your book, which is recently out in paperback, The World As It Is. Thank you. Thanks. How would you come up with that title?
0: You know, actually, um, Obama used to have a phrase that he used again and again, which is that in order to pursue the world as it should be, you have to see the world as it is. So it's funny because a lot of people heard that title and they're like, oh, here's this guy, he's beaten down. (laughs) You know, he's kind of sacrificing his idealism to the world as it is. But actually, the point of it is, if you want to be an idealist, you have to see the world as it is in order to pursue the world as it should be. And that's kind of the end of a bunch of his speeches, the Nobel Peace Prize included. And actually, I didn't know this, but when Michelle Obama wrote Becoming, she says that like on her first date, Barack Obama used that line. so That's so, a hot line. Like a lot of things, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I didn't use that on my first date, but like a lot of things in my life
1: I, I stole from Barack Obama. I'm looking at the memo I get from the staff, which is excellent as always. And I thought there was a typo because I followed your career for a bit. We share the same book agent, Yeah. Elise Cheney. We should give her a plug. We should. We can test if she listens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I thought that something clearly was wrong when it stated your age as? 41. 41. Yeah. I'm like, clearly that's an error. Yeah. How the hell are you only 41? And, and if you're 41, you're four years older than... For example, Pete Buttigieg. Why is it that you are not running? For yeah, I was going to say the thing about being uh, forty-one is uh, because I was in government so young. I'm now retired at forty-one. Right, <laughs> <That's> strange. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, kind, and, it's kind of nuts. You, yeah, so you yeah. were like a you were like a kid. I was. I when was when you came into the Obama administration to write speeches.
0: Yeah, and actually, I. Um, it's one of the ways in which I frame the book, which is I was 29 years old when I went to work for Barack Obama at the beginning of his campaign in 2007. I was hired as a speechwriter. And look, part of that is most of the establishment lined up with Hillary, right? And Obama needed, <laughs> needed people, right? And so we tended to be younger. When I moved out to the Obama headquarters in Chicago to write speeches and to be kind of a foreign policy staffer, I was like the oldest guy in the room was well, how old time. was John Favreau? John Favreau, who was the chief speechwriter, was probably twenty five at the time. Maybe he was twenty six. Kids right? a bunch yeah, of we kids. Were, we were kids there to change the world. And and I'll never forget what it felt like to go from being one of the older guys uh in the room to then coming in government at thirty one being one of the youngest guys in the room. You know, I think Obama deliberately wanted a generational balance, so you know, so he had Hillary In the first term, you had Hillary and Bob Gates and all these graybeards. And then he, he wanted some younger people around, too. He wanted diversity of views, diversity of generational viewpoints. I recognized the advantage I had is I was not famous. I was not known. I was this relatively anonymous 31-year-old. And so I could tell kind of a coming-of-age story. What's it like to be spit into the White House at 31 and spit out at 39 and to essentially have come of age at the center of all these events? So what was it like?
1: Were you in awe? When you went to the White House or just in shock or is it, yeah, this is is how I roll now? Well, we were part of this cultural phenomenon
0: of the Obama campaign. And this thing, which started as a few dozen people working to elect the first African-American president, suddenly became this phenomenon uh, over the course of 2007, 2008. But then when you come into the White House the first day – no matter how much you think you've earned it, no matter how much you think the right thing has happened, you can't help but be somewhat odd. First of all, because it's so small, I was struck by, I mean, you've been there, Preet, but you walk into the West Wing of the White House, and there's like 40 people who work there, maybe 50 people, and you're kind of looking around, where are the other people? <laughs> <You> know, um, <laughs> they're across the street. Yeah, they, are, they are across the street, but th- th- what you get is that this is just human beings in these offices making these decisions. My office in the West Wing had a very low ceiling, which didn't really matter for me because I was short. But I realized that the reason why is because the Oval Office was right above me. And they had a lot of communications and encryption equipment in the ceiling. And then I remember kind of walking around, and I kept expecting to be stopped by some, <laughs> you know, some, some armed men. Get out of here, kid. Uh, yeah, get out of here, kid. And you're walking by you know, Abraham Lincoln's official portrait, and you're walking by rooms where these momentous decisions have been made. In the first few days, you are totally awe-inspired. We were also dealing with a financial crisis and two wars. And so the work is right on top of you right away. But then what's really strange is after a few months, it's like your office. It's just like the place you go to work and where you have hallway conversations and you get takeout food at the White House mess and eat it at your desk. So this transformation
1: happens. So how do you keep from getting jaded over it? Because you you were there the whole time.
0: I was there all eight years, which is very rare. It's like you and Valerie Jarrett. Me, Valer Jared, and Dennis McDonough, I think, were right. the three people who stuck it out. Yeah. Um, you get jaded. I mean, I, I try to be honest in this book that the cynicism and, and nihilism in a way of American politics does grind on you and it wears on you. But, you know, every now and then, there are these moments that remind you what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and for me, as long as I believed in the guy I was working for, I could get through that. And I, I described after a particularly difficult stretch of time I was sitting in my office, and Obama was going down to the church in Charleston, South Carolina, where the shooting had happened from the white supremacist. And he said something kind of peculiar before he left. He's like, you know, I might sing Amazing Grace, because he had written this whole speech that was around the concept of grace.
1: Amazing Grace.
0: And so I'm watching this speech, and I'm thinking, like, is he really going to sing? And it's a great speech, and he gets to the end, and he kind of stops, and, and I could tell, like... I know he's going to sing. <laughs> you know, I'm one of the only few people who knows this.
1: Amazing grace How sweet the sound
0: But then I remember watching him doing this and thinking, like, this is why I'm here. <laughs> you know, that there's something intangible about politics that it goes beyond even policy or any individual debate. That if you're a part of an enterprise, in this case, the Obama administration, that can produce this moment, then it's worth
1: coming to work every day. Yeah. Did you know if he could sing?
0: Yeah, he sings, uh, you know, he sings a fair amount. I mean... Just in the Oval? Yeah, I, I described a different moment where I was talk, going over some speech with him in the Oval Office, and I told him this story. I don't even know how we got on nine eleven, but I, I told him this story about nine eleven because he was going to Baltimore to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the Star Spangled Banner or something, kind of stuff presents do, And I said, oh, I always liked America the Beautiful better. So I told him this story about how after 9-11, I lived in Queens, in a Queens neighborhood where there were a bunch of firefighter funerals on the blocks around me, and it was a really horrific experience. And I'd go out to these kind of railroad bars full of these burly guys who were 9-11 responders, and they were in tears, and and coming home one night and putting on Ray Charles, America the Beautiful, and and kind of having all the emotions hit me and breaking down. And he said, you know, they should make that the national anthem, <laughs> the Ray Charles version of America the Beautiful. It's and I'm really like, good. And he's like, you know, you should make the national anthem as if, like, I could do that. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, you, you could do something about that. But then, yeah, he, he kind of broke into it. Uh, he said, you know, it's all there. It's, it's American history is more in that song than the Star-Spangled Banner. It's black and white, it's suffering and victory. And he broke into America the Beautiful imitating Ray Charles and then kind of sang on the way out the door to walk to Marine One and close the door and leaves me standing there in the middle of the Oval Office. And it's another one of these moments where it's like, okay, the first African-American person just sang the Ray Charles version of America the Beautiful, walked out to Marine One and left me standing alone in the Oval Office with a bust of Martin Luther King. And the quote from Martin Luther King, the Ark of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice on the rug. And I'm like, this is again, another one of those moments that makes us
1: worth it. So you were not jaded that day? Not that day, not that a that lot day. of other days. <laughs> Mainly when I had to deal with Republicans. <laughs> All right, we're going to come to that and bipartisanship. I want to talk about the whole idea of speech writing, writing for someone else. First of all, how important is it for a president to be able to give a good speech?
0: It's really important because, you know, Obama used to tell me that everything that we were doing was telling one story about America. When you look at what made Obama successful as a politician, the 2004 Democratic Convention speech that launched his ascent is essentially the same speech as the 2000. 17 farewell address he gave before he left office. There was a consistency and an authenticity that people connected to. And all the different things we were doing, whether it was healthcare or an Iran nuclear deal or climate change, it kind of added up to one vision of a progressive America drawing on its best self, right? And the ability to communicate, sure, it's important in a crisis, it's important to persuade people, but it's also important to give people a sense of direction, you know? And what's interesting is Trump doesn't give traditionally good speeches, but he has a consistency in his rhetoric, which is, I think,
1: appeals to his no, some people love it. I want to talk yeah. about his speech giving. But can I ask you, what does it say about people, us, the citizenry, that we can be so moved by a single speech by somebody, even without knowing a lot about that person? I'll, I'll give you an example. Cyrus Habib, who's the lieutenant governor of the state of Washington, who's been a guest on the show, very impressive guy. He once told me, I had breakfast with him when I was in Seattle a few weeks ago, and he's a very good orator, speech giver. Uh, very persuasive and moving. And he has a great story. And he said, I was talking to a bunch of people one day and they all said, we want to vote for you because that was a great speech. And he says, you don't know anything about me. I mean, it's wonderful. It's really nice. It's It's a nice compliment. But how can it be that a guy gives a speech somewhere, a woman gives a speech somewhere and people are so moved by that, that they think there's something special about a person based on one speech. I mean, is there something weird about us that we're moved so quickly by someone's ability to give a good speech?
0: There is. And I've I've thought a lot about this. And one of the things I think, and this may seem fairly high level, but our identity is not rooted in an ethnicity, a religion, a monarchy, the things that nations generally are rooted in. That's not the case here. We kind of count on presidents in particular to tell us who we are. I mean, when you think about What were your early conceptions of the American story? You usually you're thinking about John F. Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Republicans may think of Reagan. You think of quotes from Lincoln and other presidents.
1: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
0: I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. A
1: president who chose the moon as our new frontier and a king who took us to the mountaintop and pointed the way to the promised land. Yes, we can to justice and equality.
0: I think that presidents kind of tell us who we are. (laughs) They tell us what we stand for. They tell us where we're going. And they fill that gap of what is our national identity. I also think Americans, they like performance. And they also recognize it's not just the United States, it's the rest of the world. The power that is vested in this one office of the presidency is enormous. I remember if something was happening on the other side of the world, there'd be this, you know, what is Obama going to say about it? What's he going to say about what's happening in Ukraine? What's he going to say about what's happening in Egypt? And I remember thinking, like, nobody's waiting to hear what Xi Jinping has to say about that, right? You know, it's this combination of the power of this office and the fact that we look to leaders to tell us where we're going in a pretty distinct way, in part because America is kind of an open and contested thing.
1: I mean, it's what story are we going to choose? (laughs) Is we going to choose the Obama story or the Trump story? How do you go about preparing a speech for someone else? Explain to folks how you go about it with this particular president who himself happens to be a great writer and speech writer.
0: Well, the first thing you have to recognize is it has to be not just a great speech. It has to be a great speech for this person. It has to be in their voice. One of the famous speeches I worked on, the Yes, We Can speech in New Hampshire.
1: Generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can.
0: Yes, we can. That was pretty good. It was pretty good. It came, music video and all this stuff. <laughs> and and the people see me and they're like, when I tell them, I, you know, I worked on that, Favre and I were the speeches, and they'll say, oh, I, I wished Obama just kind of delivered that extemporaneously. And I'd say to them, like, look. Close your eyes and imagine John Kerry or Hillary Clinton or Al Gore giving that speech. It would make no sense. (laughs) It would actually be absurd, right? It worked because it was so core to Obama. It was his message. It was his life story behind that. And so the first thing I had to do is, what is this man's voice? What is his worldview? I need to read everything he's written. I need to read his interviews. I need to try to get his cadence. And I need to kind of absorb that. And then if I had to sit down and write a speech, I have to sit down with Obama first. He would essentially usually kind of dictate – you know, a high level outline, here's what I want to say. And here's some key points I want to make. And so once I had that guidance from him, I'm basically blending it with all the policy we need to address or all the issues we need to get out there. Throughout the process of a speech where you're getting edits from all kinds of White House advisors and other people, my job was essentially to make sure that those edits didn't take away what was essentially Obama's voice in the speech. How would you describe what his voice is and what his cadence is? Every Obama speech has a basic formula which is which is how his mind works. How do we get here? You know what is the story of how we reach this particular moment when i 'm giving this particular speech? I actually always thought that was some of the more interesting parts of his speeches you know the backstory, and then he would essentially describe okay here 's the moment that we 're in, and here are the different directions that we could go, and then here 's what i 'm doing and why and that was essentially the outline you know I think his his particular cadence, at times, he, you know, he would tilt in the direction of the professor. But if he needed to let rip, if he needed to perform, if he needed to give it lift, as he would say, I mean, I would always look forward to him saying, give this one some lift. And, and then you can really, you know, tap into, frankly, it's a cadence that grows out of, I think, the African American church community, the black church community in this country, right? It's, it's very aspirational, appealing to people's Better angels of their nature, right, so he could he could dial it in either direction, something that almost no politician i 've seen can do and what I had to struggle with at times, and I got wrong at times is and this is something that people really misunderstood about Obama. he never thought his presidency was going to end race <laughs> racism in America. That was something white people thought. Um, that was something that I hoped. You know, I was the one who wanted to project the, the more feel-good story about race, the Green Book story, the, you know, the, the, the Hollywood story. And at times, what he'd have, to, he'd have to take me back down to earth and rooted in the
1: structural continued challenges of racism in this country while still appealing to optimism. Did you learn something, not just about Obama's voice, but about language and writing and rhetoric from the way he edited your speeches?
0: Yeah, absolutely. As a speech writer, you're often trying to come up with the most flowery way to say something or the best way to say something. You know, what I learned from him is the truth is the most powerful thing you can say. <laughs> and that seems like an obvious point. Most of the time, you don't feel like politicians are telling you the truth. And and when Obama was really on, it, it was when he f- it felt like this guy was telling you something that you knew, but you didn't hear people tell you, right? Sometimes rhetorically... That's just simple language. The most memorable lines from his speech on race, for instance, were not, you know, the kind of lines you carve into the wall of a memorial. It was about how he could no more disown his pastor than his white grandmother who he loved who said terrible things under her breath, you know. And and everybody's kind of nodding, like, yeah, actually, you know, that we all have these prejudices, right? And to me, the power of the rhetoric is in the sense of truth and authenticity
1: that is being communicated, not necessarily in, like, the beauty of the line. Sometimes in the way that a novelist might. Yeah. By making an observation that people can nod at.
0: That people know to be true and haven't, just haven't heard it that way, put it that way before. That's the ultimate success.
1: When you're writing a speech for Obama, are you just thinking about the words and the language, or are you also thinking about the delivery? In other words, are you, in your mind's eye, visualizing him give the speech?
0: Yeah. I mean, the good thing I had going for me, which most speechwriters don't have, is I knew that the speech would be better (laughs) in delivery because he's just really good at delivering a speech. Uh, I'll tell you the thing that when we came to the White House that I had in mind that was different was the audiences. Yeah, I remember the first time I had to write some remarks in Afghanistan, somebody said something to me like, well, remember – that you have the American people and the American media, who's kind of who you think about. Then you have Afghans and you have the Taliban. They'll watch this speech. And then you have other countries. (laughs) Like I got to write for the Taliban? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm suddenly thinking, and he's listening, and then we have our NATO allies who have troops in Afghanistan and writing for a president. And again, Trump doesn't care about this. But to me, one of the most challenging things is you have so many different audiences around the world. And what may sound really good to one is going to sound terrible to another. So it would have been easy uh, on foreign policy in particular, Preet. It would have been easy to write chest-thumping speeches all the time that Americans would love and the media would say, what a great speech, and Obama wouldn't do that because he knew that that would turn everybody off around the world, right? You know, I remember the speech he wrote about sending more troops to Afghanistan. I gave it to him and it had all this, you know, we will achieve victory and we will, you know, win. And he took all that out. He said, we're, we're not going to win. We're not going to lose either. We're, we're setting some objectives for these troops, and if I say that we're going to stay there until we win, then we're going to stay there forever. Because we're not going to eradicate every member of the Taliban. And it was not as good a speech rhetorically because of that. But it was, in his mind, a more responsible. So to me, I heard the delivery. But what I also really thought about is, is how is everybody going to consume
1: this? Right. Like the State of the Union speech. Yeah. Which is often among the worst speeches that a president. It's a, it's, a terrible genre. It's right? often one of the worst speeches a president can give because you have so many constituencies. Yeah. You think the Taliban is right now. Think of, like, <laughs> yeah. think of all the constituencies yeah. in America that you have to please in like a laundry list type. Was there one speech that was the hardest for you to write? Was it the Mandela speech or something else?
0: <laughs> the hardest speech, it's a really good question. Um, the hardest speech for me to write, he gave an address to the nation about Syria in late summer of 2013. This was the infamous red line, you know, that Syrians conduct this chemical weapons attack. Obama is inclined to use military force, but he decides to seek congressional authorization to have a legal basis for doing this, right? And that's a whole legal issue that's interesting. But it became evident that Congress was not going to give, give us the votes to get this authorization. We had decided to give this address to the nation before that was evident. So I had been tasked to write a speech to basically try to mobilize public opinion around bombing Syria and getting congressional support for that position. And in the window while I'm working on this speech, congressional support collapses, and then This diplomatic option emerges where the Russians say, well, we'll work with you to get the chemical weapons out of Syria. And it was the strangest speech to write because I was condemning this horrific thing that had happened, this chemical weapons attack. I was saying that we were prepared to use military force to deal with it, but we're not going to. (laughs) And everybody knew that the reason we weren't was tied to the fact that Congress wasn't giving us his votes. But we also had this diplomatic agreement that hadn't been completed yet. So that's the worst place to be for a politician is – when you're caught in the middle, you don't know the end of the story yet, and yet you're still narrating the story. And there were a few instances like that.
1: Should Obama have been less scripted? He got some criticism for you know, always using a teleprompter, and I guess there's an argument for that. You want to be careful and precise, maximize the opportunity. But should he have been less scripted?
0: Well, yes and no. Uh, the no is if you watch Obama in an interview, he's full professor. He's much more inspiring on a teleprompter. And that's not because we're writing
1: the words. You're saying he, professor is a bad thing. You know I teach it a lot. Yeah, well, here.
0: <laughs> I, I'm teaching you so I know too, so I don't want right. to d- diminish it. But, but his actually natural speaking style is not that inspirational. And if you look at John F. Kennedy, it's the same thing. This is not like just unique to Obama. Some people, for whatever reason, are much more energized on a text, and he would go off the text, right? And that's where it was really good, is if you had a good text, but then he could ad lib stuff. So I don't know that he necessarily would have been more compelling off script. I do think that Trump has shown you. I don't agree with just about anything <laughs> Trump has done, but we were sometimes overly careful. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Obama's instincts as a lawyer as a constitutional lawyer were to not ever cross certain lines or break certain norms his instincts as an african-american were like jackie robinson they're gonna be hurling insults at me from the bleachers and i'm gonna stand on first base and not yell back you know and i understand that psychologically but i do think at times it restricted our ability to call out the massive amounts of bullshit around us, you know, (laughs) because he wasn't going to, you know, you've got people yelling at him in Congress, you know, when he addresses Congress, you've got the cynicism of Mitch McConnell, you've got the kind of racism of the birther movement. In the birther movement, his response to that was to release his birth certificate and prove rationally that I'm correct and that these people are crazy. And I've never really thought about this, but like the, the place to be unscripted was just in calling out the complete and utter cynicism emanating from the Republican Party because it was
1: there all eight years. Uh, it didn't just emerge with Trump. But what's odd is, and you seem to allude to this a couple of times, Trump, people will say, and not everyone will like my characterization, he's an effective communicator. Yeah. And a lot of people who don't agree with him think that he's got a poor vocabulary, which is true. He's very repetitive, which is true, which is another way of saying he's always on message. I mean, everyone understands the guy has a view about quote-unquote fake news, no collusion, whether or not the Mueller report says it. And some people get faulted when they're running for office and when they're trying to make a persuasive argument about something. They intelligent people yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes don't want to be repetitive and say the same thing 17 different ways, none of which ever ends up being memorable. But the one criticism of Trump from all sides is that when he does use a script, it tends to be not a good speech. It's terrible. The theorem that you just suggested a few minutes ago is that you know some people like Obama is better with a script. What is it about Trump that makes him worse with a script?
0: It's authenticity. So Barack Obama was able to be authentic with the script, in part because he would work on it. You know, when Trump reads a, a speech, you feel like he's reading it for the right, first right. time on the it's, teleprompter, right? It's like a hostage yeah. message. <laughs> with Obama, he's put his his stamp on that speech. He's, he's given us the guidance for it. He's edited a bunch. You know, he'd edit things 10, 15 times before it was finalized. The key element for any politician is to be authentic. Trump doesn't sound authentic when he's reading a script. When he gets up in front of a big crowd and he's just talking, he is entirely himself, yeah. right? And Obama was able to be entirely himself reading a speech, which is actually a rarer skill in some ways. But that's Trump. And it, it, if you want to see him at his best, you have to see him at those rallies.
1: But then there was a speech that Trump gave recently at Normandy, which got a lot of praise. And it was a scripted speech. Did you Did you watch it?
0: Yeah, but— I actually didn't. I mean,
1: <laughs> this is. Uh, I'm not saying I thought it was great. Yeah, but, but, uh, but look, a uh, lot, a lot of people, including critics of the president, yeah, went until and they got criticized for this. Yeah, thought that it was a good speech and it was written by someone else. Here's the thing: I have a problem with this because this has happened a few times with Trump. Lay it on. I'll us.
0: lay it on you. Uh, <laughs> okay. And here I'll be. A Don't cynical. hold I'll back. Be a little cynical. Here. It's a podcast. Every single speechwriter who's ever lived can write a good D-Day speech. This is not a hard fucking story to tell, right? Like, these guys (laughs) storm the beaches, the biggest heroes in American history. Like, literally, I I teach a class that deals with speech writing. Any one of those students could probably write a serviceable D-Day speech. And what happens in the media here that drives me insane is if this guy does anything at any point that looks vaguely like what we would expect from a president, they overcrank the praise. It's like, Wow. Instead of insulting, you know, the press, <laughs> our, allies. our allies, he actually uttered the written words that any U.S. president would say at D-Day. That doesn't mean that this was a great speech. You know, if he didn't knock over the podium and hurl insults at Emmanuel Macron, you have these pundits poised. And part of this is, Preet, which also drives me crazy, they think that like, well, because I'm hard on Trump all the time. I have to occasionally, like, really give him a praise, right? And so this is like, this happened in the State of the Union, his first State of the Union. At the end, he told the story about some Navy SEAL who had passed away. Again, any president would do this. You would have thought that the combination of John F. Kennedy Franklin Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln were reincarnated. This is when he said he became president tonight <laughs> just because he did something that any you know movie president would do. He doesn't believe those words. The reason it's not a great speech is he doesn't believe that. A great speech is when somebody says something that is true and authentic to who they are that nobody else could deliver. The fact that Donald Trump delivered a speech that literally anybody could deliver and just happened to not insult people doesn't mean he did something great. It just means he chose not to be Donald Trump that day.
1: I could talk to you about speech writing yeah. um, for the whole hour and multiple more hours because I find it fascinating and it's rare that I get you know, to talk to somebody like you who is so deeply involved, especially with the last president. But I also want to talk about foreign policy, yeah. which has been your specialty. At the intersection of communication and foreign policy is where you sat yeah. or stood uh, or marched or whatever, yeah. for whatever word <laughs> yeah, you yeah. want to use, for a number of years. I find foreign policy intimidating. and I think a lot of people do. Um, it's not covered in quite the same way. When you come upon an issue, whether it's the Middle East or Russia or something else, there's so much history that precedes it that a newcomer to an issue who's a thoughtful American citizen, as I like to think I am, it feels difficult to get up to speed on something. And when people talk about it on the news, whether it's in the paper or on TV, unlike with other things, there's a lot of assumption of knowledge about what has transpired in the past and what the failures have been in any part of the world that's complex. It's also complex because there are no real rules. I don't understand the rules of engagement are. How do you think about talking about foreign policy and international relations in a way that the public can understand?
0: I actually think that this is a huge deficit in our national discourse. One of the most important elements is there's a question of of agency. How much can the U.S. affect something that is happening? I remember talking to a journalist who I respected a lot who covered the White House and then went to London. He said, he was in the White House, and something would happen in the Middle East or anywhere around the world it 'd be like sentence one, this happened, sentence two, what does this mean for obama what 's he going to do about it? Whereas when he moved to London, it was like first paragraph this happened, this is why it happened, this is what could happen, and then here are the options for the u s and other countries. We assume because we 're American that our president this has gone out the window a little bit with Trump, but should fix everything around the world. And so part of what ends up happening is we cover foreign policy like kind of a scorecard. Where did you notch your wins? Uh, Did you deliver the democracy in this country? Or did you take the nuclear weapon away from that person? And these are incredibly complex issues informed by historical forces. Sometimes the US has a lot of capacity to get something done. Sometimes we don't. So the example of the Iran nuclear agreement, the, the argument we get is, and we have this agreement they roll back the Iranian nuclear program, they had to take out about two-thirds of their nuclear centrifuges. They had to ship out their nuclear stockpile. I don't want to go too in the weeds, but the, the critics would basically like, why are they allowed to have any nuclear program? And that's like an easy argument to make in the US. And to answer that, I have to explain nuclear physics and the fact that they already know what the nuclear fuel cycle is, and so you can't erase nuclear knowledge. I'd have to talk about 1979 and the Iranian revolution and the Iranian psychology is such that they're not going to capitulate completely, and so we have to design this. And, and that's not going to come up in the coverage, right? So to me, the, the biggest challenge is the American impulse for solution, for agency, we have to do something, is how coverage is framed. If something bad is happening in the world, that is bad for Obama or that is bad for Trump. Rather than there's something bad happening in the world, let's figure out whether we can do anything about it, Right. That's gotten us into trouble, right? Because that's how you end up in wars that, that you can't win <laughs> because the expectation is, well, go fix this, uh, go remove this dictator, go stop this killing in another country.
1: And it's almost always not that simple. You said something very interesting to me that's going to take us back to the speech writing yeah. in broad strokes. So you write a speech for the president. Maybe it's a 20-minute speech. Maybe it's a 45-minute speech. Yeah. Most speeches are not covered in full uh, yeah. by a cable network. Yeah. And even if it is, most Americans have other things that they're doing. Maybe they read an article about it and there'll be some quotes from the speech or some lines on the evening news. When you're writing a speech, do you think about, I think you must, but yeah. i confirmed this for me. Yeah. Do you think about what those takeaway lines, the quotable lines, are going to be? And is that your point about foreign policy that, because yeah. it's so complicated, you are not going to do justice to the issue for the public given the reality that in the 40-minute speech that you've written, the background stuff is never going to make its way into an article or in a clip. And so that's why that's more difficult.
0: Yeah. This changed even while I was in the White House. You know, By the end of the White House, if I wrote a speech, I had to know that like a lot of people were going to consume that speech on Twitter, um, literally bits and pieces. You also had the politicization of how all these issues are covered for a lot of reasons that you know, we don't have to get into all of them, but basically in part because news organizations shrunk and news organizations became more political-focused, more D.C.-focused. The way in which uh, an issue was covered, let's take a hard issue like Syria, was not what is happening in Syria? Who are these different forces fighting on the ground? It's John McCain and Lindsey Graham called Barack Obama the weakest president in the history of the world. What's your response? Right. And that has nothing to do (laughs) with solving anything in Syria, right? But that's the prism through which all these things get consumed is it's just another issue in the back and forth, right? Who's up, who's down. Who's up, who's down. So it's a combination of information not reaching people. The information that does reach people is usually in the who's up, who's down frame. And foreign policy just doesn't work that way. I mean, very few things work that way, but foreign policy certainly doesn't. And you see this with Trump, to give an example. He understands this in a a weird way. So we have a huge problem with North Korea. They have nuclear weapons. They have missiles. They're reaching a capacity where they could reach the United States with a nuclear-tip missile. He has this big summit with Kim Jong-un. The illusion from that is he did something big. He solved this problem. We're sitting here like a year later, almost exactly a year later. North Korea has built more nuclear weapons. They're still testing missiles. The problem has gotten worse. It wasn't solved? Well, I would bet you that at least his people think it was solved, right? So he's figured out that like yeah. the, the shallowness, I guess, of how these issues are presented gives him an opportunity where he doesn't even have to solve the problem.
1: His people think that the Mueller report doesn't say anything negative about the president. Yes.
0: And, th- well, and this is a whole other thing, the way in which the right-wing media ecosystem works. But it affects foreign policy because what you're seeing now is on Iran, it's a classic example. He railed against the nuclear agreement like everybody else did because they thought that was good politics, call Obama a week. He pulled out of this agreement. And here we are a year after he pulled out of the agreement and Iran has announced they're going to start building up their stockpile again. The problem's going to get worse. He v- approached the issue as an American domestic political issue, not as a foreign policy issue. A foreign policy issue is how do I have an agreement that achieves my objectives as best it can? He approached it as how can I look like I'm tearing up Obama's deal? I'm being tough on Iran. Well, in the real world, when you do that, the Iranians say, well, we're going to start rebuilding our nuclear right. program. So we're going to be dealing with the consequences. And, and the problem with foreign policy is the consequences usually take additional time
1: to to come home to roost. Fair to say that the Obama doctrine with respect to foreign policy was don't do stupid shit.
0: I always say that that was the first side of the coin and the other side of the coin was do smart shit. But essentially, <laughs> I think the ba- if I had to summarize it, it is Obama came in after a period of – massive American overreach, you know, the Iraq war and the financial crisis had, we were an overextended superpower. And what Obama was saying is we need to pull back and not do stupid shit like the Iraq war. And then we need to build new forms of international cooperation to solve problems. Paris Agreement to solve climate change, the Iran nuclear agreement to solve uh, the Iranian nuclear issue, uh, trade agreements that allow us to have a block that can confront China and and on and on around the world. And so what he was essentially doing is if we're going to be pulling back American overextension in the Middle East, we're going to have to be building multilateral efforts that amplify our power. Trump, what's interesting is he's made similar critiques, right? We got to, you know, we, we shouldn't be fighting these wars. But his idea is to just pull back entirely and tear up the agreements and then pick fights where you feel like you want to. So they they made similar diagnoses, uh, but have the opposite (laughs)
1: solution. Did you ever get an assignment from Obama saying, hey, write a speech about how we shouldn't do stupid shit and then give it some lift? Yeah, well, this- (laughs) There's a lot to lift there. I
0: mean, as people may remember, so Obama says this kind of an offhand comment, don't, you know, part of his foreign policy is don't do stupid shit. Um, what he was clearly referring to is like stop going to wars in the Middle East because he was constantly under pressure to go into some other country. What was interesting is this was considered a gaffe? Like Preet, I don't know, but, like in life, like why <laughs> – who wants to do stupid shit? Like I, I it, Look, that's always it, been yeah. my doctrine, my it, personal yeah, yeah. doctrine I, was, has it, been don't do stupid minimum shit. Minimum do no harm <laughs> and, and it's like – It's worked out pretty well. It, it was interesting because it it poked this uh, sensitivity you know, because because everybody knew what the stupid shit was, Vietnam, Iraq, you know, you could argue Afghanistan, like um, you could argue Libya under us, right? Uh, so, I, I, you know, it was interesting that it was controversial in Washington circles for somebody to say we shouldn't do stupid shit. And they're like, no, we must keep
1: doing the stupid shit, you know? This is the most we've used the word shit on the show. I'm sorry. And, you know, there yeah. are children who listen to this, you know. Cricket media. This is not pod safe. Uh, yeah, guys. sorry. Um, let's talk about some arguably stupid shit. Were we, under the Obama administration, too soft on Russia?
0: Yeah, I think we were too slow to realize. And people forget, in a way, that Medvedev was in there for the first three years. And he really wanted to do all this stuff with us. So we did an arms control agreement, the New Star Treaty. They agreed with us on doing Iran sanctions. The relationship was really good. Putin comes back in in 2012. And he is just hellbent on pushing back on the United States. And I think, not just from Obama, but from... Twenty years of perceived humiliation. He felt Russia had been getting a bad deal for twenty years. NATO is getting to his borders. The EU is getting to his borders. We regime change in Iraq, regime change in Libya. And we were we were wrong in thinking that all that good progress with Medvedev was something that Putin must have been on board with. Everybody assumed that Putin was kind of behind the throne, and you know, it took us too long to see the extent to which when Putin came back, all bets are off. Now we got there, obviously, when he's with what he was doing in Syria and Ukraine. And then we were quite tough with him. I mean, the sanctions that we put on Russia with the Europeans are having a huge impact on him. But I do think that the analytical failure was to think that the first Obama term was going to foreshadow where things were going to go in the second Obama term. And the shift from Medvedev to Putin was much more dramatic than we anticipated. Was Mitt
1: Romney more correct Yeah, he's more correct. In in the 2012 debate, the famous debate. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I think that the answer is yes, so I'm giving him the credit. But I also think, like, these things become talisman as if Mitt Romney had foreseen everything that was going to happen. I mean, what's interesting about it is Mitt Romney was representing a conventional Republican Party view that the Russians are the number one geopolitical adversary. I think Obama's view was that, well, terrorism is the biggest threat. But frankly, to this day, I would argue China is actually still the biggest geopolitical competitor. China is much more powerful than Russia. So the two addendums I make to Romney being right in his identifying the Russian threat are one, I still think China's a bigger challenge than Russia um, with all the Russia's doing. And two, what the hell happened to the Republican Party? (laughs) Like These are the guys who who literally built their entire foreign policy in the post-World War II era around opposition to Russia. The, the Mitt Romney rhetoric of 2012, some of the same people who throw that quote back at me, Preet, yeah. are enabling <laughs> everything Donald Trump is doing in essentially letting Vladimir Putin run rampant in our democracy. So I take it with a grain
1: of salt. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Sometimes we all need a break from the constant news cycle. And The Great Courses Plus is a great escape. With this streaming service, I can pick up a new hobby or build my knowledge on virtually any topic, like the great palaces of the ancient world and mysteries of human behavior. There are thousands of fascinating lectures to explore, all presented by passionate, award-winning experts. They have how-to courses on everything. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. In my family... I'm the only one who doesn't play an instrument. Thankfully, there's a course for that, How to Listen to and Understand Great Music. It's a fascinating look at the social, cultural, and philosophical influences in music. It certainly helps me appreciate the endless stream of sounds created in my house, even if I can't tickle the ivories myself. Learn something new and empower yourself with knowledge. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. For a limited time, my listeners can get 40 days free. That's 40 days of unlimited access to their entire fascinating library when you sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Preet. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Preet. So let's talk about Iran, which is much in the news. I heard General McCaffrey on television saying, you know, if, if it comes to the point where Iran, whether by mistake or otherwise does anything with our Navy, we're going to war and it's not going to be good for Iran. But before we get to the issue of war, you mentioned a couple of times the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. Describe for folks, because you know, people assume knowledge everywhere. Yeah. Describe for folks what the point of that was and whether it was good or not. So Iran has had a nuclear program for a long time, you know, at least 20 years.
0: And it has steadily advanced over that period of time. There are different ways in which a nation can acquire a nuclear weapon. Technically, they can do that by acquiring enough enriched uranium, that is one kind of uh, material that can build a nuclear weapon, or plutonium. So Iran had advanced to a point where they were closing in on having enough centrifuges operating, those are the machines that uh, you know produce the enriched uranium, where they could stockpile material for a bomb. And they were closing in on building a heavy water reactor, which is what produces... Weapons-grade plutonium, right? So we have a problem we have to solve. The problem we have to solve is this country that has a foreign policy that is hostile to the United States, it supports terrorism, that threatens Israel, is reaching a point where they have enough enriched uranium and potentially plutonium to build a nuclear weapon. So we have to figure out, okay, how do we stop them
1: from doing that? So right? what are the so the options? Yeah. broadly speaking, the options for any president at that moment, and that could have been know, a moment in a Reagan presidency yeah. or a Carter presidency or any, presidency, Trump, any yeah. presidency. So broadly speaking, as a foreign policy expert, the potential options at that moment are what? Honestly, there, there
0: are three options. One is you you essentially succumb to this, right? And they cross this threshold and acquire a nuclear weapon, which is what happened with North Korea under the Bush administration. North, North Korea reached that threshold and tested a nuclear bomb in 2006. And we said it was too risky to go to war. And now ever since, we've been living with a nuclear on North Korea. So one is you don't do anything or you kind of succumb to it. Two is you take military action to stop them from developing uh, this capability. Which is essentially war. Can you do that in a lightning strike? Well, this I'll come back to what McCaffrey said later, but yeah, it's war. I mean, because essentially what it is is you bomb – these facilities, right? And one of these facilities is around Tehran, there are people who, like you would kill people. The way in which this is talked about in euphemisms, and I just did, military action, like we would bomb things and kill people um, to set back their nuclear program. And the risks associated with that are, one, it doesn't actually entirely solve the problem because then they they know how to do this, they know how to produce this material. They may think, well, you just bombed us. We're going to double down and accelerate our efforts to try to develop uh, this nuclear material um you you know some estimates where you'd only set them back kind of a year by doing that and you risk a, a much wider war with iran and and we can talk in a, a bit about why i think that would be a catastrophe so but you know one is bomb the facilities one is do nothing and the third is some kind of diplomatic agreement right and those are really the only three options and so what we did is over a period of years we enforced very tough sanctions on iran to squeeze them and force them to come back to the negotiating table and then we sat down with a bunch of other countries Russia, China, France, Germany, the UK, and the European Union to negotiate a deal that gave us satisfaction that Iran would not be able to build a nuclear weapon. And what they did is essentially say, okay, you're worried about plutonium, we're going to destroy the core of this reactor, you can rebuild it so that it can never produce weapons grade plutonium, literally, like we got to participate in the design of something that cannot produce plutonium for a weapon. So you take that away. Then on the enrichment side, you say, and this is a painstaking negotiation because the Iranians are saying, well, we're entitled to some nuclear power for peaceful purposes. We don't really accept that. But at the same time, you're making a deal, right? They're not going to get rid of every last bolt and screw their nuclear program. So what we say is, what is satisfactory to us? You have to ship all of your stockpile out of the country, so you don't maintain a stockpile of this material. You have to take out two-thirds of these centrifuges, so you have much more limited capacity to produce uh, nuclear materials. And we have to have inspectors in your nuclear facilities, in the mines where you get this material, in the mills where you convert it, uh, literally sensors on the centrifuges. So if they turn on a centrifuge that um, is supposed to be taken out, we know immediately. So, is it the perfect deal? No. The perfect deal would eliminate every last vestige of their nuclear program. But is it a good deal? I think absolutely yes because it solves this one problem. <laughs> it, like Iran cannot get a nuclear weapon with this deal in place. And we can verify that because we have all these inspectors in there. And it sets them so far back that even if they cheat, even if they, you know, decide to kick out all the inspectors and push a nuclear weapon, we would obviously know that, and we would have a sufficient period of time,
1: at least a year, to figure out what to do about it. Um, But a lot of people didn't like the deal, including Democrats. Their criticism that was most pointed was what? Um,
0: I I think there were a lot of disingenuous (laughs) criticisms, but the most valid ones. I think the most valid ones were some of these provisions about the limitations on their nuclear Activities had expiration dates, right? So the prohibition on Iran never getting nuclear weapon was permanent the inspections A lot of that was permanent, but after 10 years after 15 years We said you will have earned some trust if you if you comply with this deal for 10 years 15 years And we will allow you to reinstall some of these centrifuges to do some additional activity And so some people said wait a second um, why can't this deal be permanent? Uh, why don't why can't the strongest elements of this deal be permanent? Our argument was essentially, what I what I that's a fair argument. But I, what I'd say is, if you what you're worried about is what's going to happen ten or fifteen years from now, like you can deal with that <laughs> ten or fifteen years from now. Like like well, like why not just accept th- these constraints for for the time being? We can see what the current dynamic is in ten or fifteen years, and if you don't like that Iran uh, acquiring more stockpile, then then all the same options are available. You can sanction them. You can uh, bomb the, their facilities. Trump, in pulling out of the deal and not providing Iranians a sanctions relief, they're doing now what people criticized us for happening 10 years from now, which is beginning to, to start their stockpile again, right? So is,
1: is, is the Trump criticism of the Iran deal that among the three options, do nothing, go to war, some diplomatic resolution, that he can negotiate a better deal, some better diplomatic resolution, or is it inexorably leading towards the second option, which is go to war. So, and this is the, the crux of the debate, Preet. First, I'd say, I think this is important.
0: I don't think Donald Trump has the slightest idea what is in the Iran deal. Right. I've but always- But John Bolton does. John Bolton does, but I've always wanted a reporter to just say, what, what are the elements of the Iran nuclear agreement? Because it's kind of- Yeah, you
1: know, you know what Trump's said, like, you're being a little
0: wise guy. Yeah, but it's kind of breathtaking <laughs> that it's pretty clear he has no idea, but, but t- take it face value. Um, there is a view that I never, honestly never understood but I'll try to present it fairly, and, and then I'll present the disagreement. I think John Bolton, if Bibi Netanyahu was sitting here, if Mohammed bin Salman was sitting here, would say there's a fourth option, which is what they're doing now, maximum pressure, which is you just sanction and sanction and squeeze and squeeze, and at some point you just kind of break them, right? And what's never been articulated is, what that means. Like, what does that mean the regime collapses? Does that mean they just kind of come out with their hands up and give up their nuclear program? Because the, the, honestly, if, if it's you squeeze them to get a better deal, the Europeans have been trying desperately to do that. You know? So uh, since Trump tr- started trying to, to, to pull out of the deal and then did pull out, the Europeans have been saying, well, come back with us to the table and we'll try to add some additional elements to this deal. And they're saying no to that, right? So I think they might argue that there's a fourth option, but this is a key point in the whole debate In the debate that happened in 2015, 2016. We said, guys, no, it's, it's a deal like this or it's a war. Like There's not another option. And people would say to us, you guys are being disingenuous. No, we honestly believe that. <laughs> you might disagree. I honestly believe, I don't, I don't see any other option because I don't see the Iranians capitulating under sanctions. I actually see the Iranians becoming more belligerent under sanctions. And I have to say, Preet, like, and, and I've owned up to some uh, things we got wrong in this. So and this one, I'll, I'll say that we we're right. That's exactly what's happened. Trump pulled out of this deal. The Iranians became more belligerent. They're more belligerent in the region. They're, they've announced <laughs> restart their stockpile. And we're ultimately going to get to a point where either you're coming back into a deal like this, or you're going to go to war, or they're going to get a nuclear weapon. Right. I don't see what the other way is.
1: What is the goal? What The foreign policy professionals who are trying to keep their eye on the ball, whatever the goal is. Is the goal just eliminate the nuclear program, uh, stall the nuclear program, all about the nuclear program because that presents the most existential threat to Israel and others? Or is it long-term regime change or some other goal, a a product of which will be hopefully something good about the nuclear program?
0: It's, you know, this is another difference. Um, The goal for us was to eliminate the nuclear threat. And so you have a country in Iran that is a bad actor that does things that we don't like that meddles in the affairs of other countries, supports terrorism, and so we're saying, well, the biggest threat is that they can get a nuclear weapon. So let's let's remove that that element from this picture. Let, let's uh, the, the the biggest thing that we're worried about as foreign policy professionals is these people having a nuclear weapon, and then let's get that off the table and try to deal with these other things. Um, I personally think that you know Bolden's goal, and this is. What he wrote and said before he was in government was regime change, was to say that as long as this regime exists in Iran, it's an unacceptable threat. Is that a bad goal? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, can I wish for the Iranian regime to change? Do I think the Iranian people would be better off with a different kind of government? Sure. But for the U.S. to remove it? If we were to remove them militarily, or let's say even I'm wrong and they do collapse, I think that what emerges is worse. <laughs> and this is what, but we've seen this in plenty of other countries. The people with guns in Iran are the people who are even worse than the people running it now. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard. You prosecuted um, you uh, one of their uh, foot soldiers. Those are the guys who'd win a power struggle. There's not some fifth column of, uh, you know, even even though I do believe there are a lot of. Um, small d democrats in iran who want a more democratic society and and want a more rational foreign policy i just don't believe that the u.s imposing regime change on iran would make things better i think it'd make it worse Um, our bet was that you will do more hopefully over time to encourage iran to move in a different direction by engaging them and trying to deal with them than by shoving them in the corner one of my experiences in foreign policy is we, we have this misperception, I think, as Americans that, that if we just punish and punish and punish, some of these places will change. And Cuba is another place I worked on. And we've been punishing them for 60 years. And guess what? The Castro regime is still there. I think we can get further opening up and, and having more ideas and more people and more opportunities that can provide an incentive for a place to change uh, rather than saying we're going to impose regime change.
1: So let's talk about what's happening in the, in the present day. And in the immediate term. So there's this business with these tankers. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if you read the press casually, you would think that they were American tankers. Yeah. They're not. No. What's happening there? Um, so
0: you have these two tankers, uh, Japanese flag tankers passing uh, in the Gulf of Oman. There's in a part of the world where there's a ton of shipping that takes place. And they're attacked and set on fire a few days ago. The Trump administration comes out right away and says Iran is to blame.
1: Aren't they correct about that?
0: I, I mean, I sh- probably. Um, I'm a little. I'm like the. The problem is pre. Um, when you have this level of credibility problem. Yeah. I think it's fair to say you guys got to cross a higher bar than Mike Pompeo coming out and showing us one grainy video of some guys in a speedboat. and you know, saying although I do think
1: that the House Intel Chair Adam yeah. Schiff also said that he believes it to be true as well. Yeah. It?
0: No. I look. I, and and I you know I don't want people to think I don't think Iran did this. I do think – You want more proof. I want more proof because, look, when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal, he said that Iran wasn't complying with the deal even though they were (laughs) in in an international – If I'm sitting in Europe, if I'm one of our allies, I'm thinking like I just need – I need – but it's – by the way, it's not just for my – if we're going to – if something's going to happen here, the world needs more proof, right? If they want to build support for some action to to take against Iran in any way punitive – I just think the normal course would be to present your evidence to your allies or at the UN, right? So, yes, but let's say Iran did this. Um, You also don't know what happened. Was this Iran? Was this an Iranian proxy? Was this something that the Iranians meant to do? Or was this something that a bunch of cowboys did? Like, this kind of stuff matters to other countries, right? When you're trying to build support.
1: Since the intelligence debacle that caused us to go to war in Iraq, this is what I'm saying, you want you want more proof. The, the, and, it, and we can't take dramatic actions in the absence of a higher threshold of proof. So
0: right now people say to me, like, who's this guy? Who's side he's on? And, and I'm uh, what I'm saying is not that I'm on Iran's side. Who's of side before. are you on? I'm on Settle on, it I, right here. I, what I'm saying is look at the Gulf of Tonkin and look at the Iraq War. The two biggest catastrophes in American history in terms of our foreign policy were started under false pretenses. And the Gulf of Tonkin— I think people really did think that that was attacked by North Vietnamese at a certain point, and it turned out to be wrong. I think some people really did think that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and it turned out to be wrong. Like, you need to interrogate this evidence, <laughs> is what you used to do, Preet. And then the second question is, like I said, watch the news coverage. There's like a presumption that we go to war with these tankers. Why on earth would we go to war over two tankers being on fire in the Gulf of Oman? That's crazy. I don't think most Americans think that, like, we should go to war. A war with Iran is a real thing.
1: May, and this is a <laughs> that's, big, an un, that, that's right up there with don't do stupid shit. Yeah, this the war a, with Iran is a real
0: thing. this is a big country they yeah. have the capacity to hit back in a lot of ways they, they, they would attack us in Iraq they would attack us in Afghanistan they would attack Israel they could launch attacks in Lebanon they could launch as you know terrorist attacks in the western hemisphere like we could be talking about a, a very costly war that could make the war in Iraq look like the, the warm up act
1: do you think that Trump himself wants to go to war?
0: I don't think he does I think Bolton does. So what's weird to watch this is you have Bolton and I think Pompeo had this agenda
1: where- You think Pompeo wants to go to war also?
0: I, well, I know Bolton does. And if people say, well, how can you, like he said, it, you know, like he's said this for years. Like this is, he believes this is ultimately ending in some kind of war, right? I don't know if he wants to go to war tomorrow, but I think he does think that at a certain point, the US is going to have a military conflict with Iran. I think Pompeo has either deluded himself into thinking that we can sanction them into Dust, or he wants to go to war. I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is what they are doing is making war more and more likely. Um, And Trump's he wants to have the rhetorical boogeyman of Iran, but that is creating its own logic that is leading towards war. The constant battering of Iran and the constant piling up of sanctions on Iran and the constant provocations emanating from us towards Iran are now resulting in Iranian provocations towards us. And once you get on that kind of cycle of escalation, how do you get off? You know, and, and, and are these the kind of people, Trump, Bolton, Pompeo, who can get off? I hope they can. Pl- I Please, I, I really hope they can. But I, I fear that they can't.
1: Is Joe Biden uh, the right person to be the next president of the United States?
0: I think anybody who's, <laughs> who's running on the Democratic side is the right person.
1: I don't. Um, Wait, am I correct that you, I'm trying to go through the list of the 4,000 in my head. Yeah. Am I correct that Joe Biden is the one you know best personally?
0: Yeah, I know him best, but I know a lot of them. Yeah, um, I'm avowedly neutral. I think Joe you're Biden. Not, you're not advising anyone. I provide advice to anybody who asks. Okay. That's kind of my. Uh, it's a good place to be. Um, I think Joe Biden would be a great president. I think Joe Biden has a set of skills that are unique to Joe Biden. Democrats will be have to ch- choice to make. Preet is, do you go with a guy like Biden, who I think is uh, someone who is a steadying influence, knows how to do the job or do we want to fall in love with somebody new who comes along? <laughs> you know, and who's I think who's the new person you're Well, fall in love? everybody's gonna get a turn, right? So right. like Buttigieg got a turn and and Warren, she's new related relative to Biden. I mean I basically think there's this cohort of of Warren and and Pete people used to think Beto, who knows maybe he'll get another shot, Kamala, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. What'll happen is either one of these people will build a juggernaut that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and, bigger and overtakes Biden. Or they won't, and Biden will be the nominee. You haven't mentioned Bernie. Um, Yeah, I I, first of all, I'll say something really nice about Bernie, which is I I think Bernie's been a hugely positive force on the debate for the last four years. By the way, foreign policy as well as domestic policy, uh, clarifying, motivating to people. Um, You know, Bernie's definitely part of this mix. I don't think there's space for both Bernie and Warren. You know, they're both kind of tapping into a certain kind of. Populism. So one's gonna
1: knock the other one one's gonna
0: knock the other one out so right you know we're sitting here today warren looks like that person but man i've been through a primary like barack obama was <laughs> yeah. 30 points down at this time so i'm aware that we could be sitting here six months from now and bernie's where warren is now
1: that actually gets me to my next question do you think trump's election was a fluke or did it reflect something about america that you did not appreciate
0: i don't i think it was um, I don't think it was a fluke in the sense that I think that by the time Donald Trump came down the escalator at Trump Tower in 2015, he was the obvious Republican nominee. The Republican Party has been moving in this Did direction. Did you think that then? You didn't think that then. Um, no, I didn't think that Okay. Then. When I went back and was writing this book, you know, there's a direct line. Sarah Palin to the Tea Party. We had a phenomenon in the Obama campaign in 08 of what I would call forwarded emails, which is uh, emails forwarded around by someone's like racist uncle, Obama is a Muslim who's not born in the United States or whatever. They're forwarded enough that we had to actually respond to these and give field organizers talking points. Then Sarah Palin is like that forwarded email as the vice presidential nominee and then the Tea Party and then the birth movement and then all the conspiracy theories, Benghazi, which I had to live through and and the rest of it, right? And this kind of radicalization happening in Republican politics and right-wing media the ugliness, the anti-immigrant pieces of it, the anti-Muslim pieces of it, were are building and building the, the extremism of their opposition to Obama. These were all there, you know, as early as 2010. I mean, <laughs> and so Trump, that's why he never trailed. So I think it wasn't a fluke in the sense that Donald Trump represents the views of the Republican Party of the United States. And that's why I disagree with Biden, by the way. This is not an aberration. This is where this party has gone. And maybe not the Republicans that you and I know, but the voters, you know, um, and it's not to say they're bad people, but it's this mix of the media they're consuming and, and the failure of politicians to take a principled stand on certain things. So I don't think it was a fluke in the sense that I think the Republican Party is moving in that direction. I think like 900 weird things had to go wrong for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and they all did, and their campaign had problems. and And so I don't think that this was like some decisive shift in American—I mean— Donald Trump got less votes for president than Mitt Romney got, and Obama cleaned Mitt Romney's clock, right? So I don't think there's some huge shift in American public opinion. I think now that we talked about stories earlier, we're presented with the starkest choice possible. The story that Barack Obama represented, is that the future of American politics? Or does the story that Donald Trump represented, is that the future of American politics? And I think the answer to that question will answer everything. And what do you predict? I predict that if you look at American history, there's always – Blowbacks to change. There's always, after every advance for civil rights or social rights or social safety net. Yeah, there's always a backlash and then we always pick up and keep moving forward right and so to me that, this answer of legacy I, I don't think our legacy has been undone because frankly it could be picked up and carried forward you know the Paris agreement for day one of the next democratic administration my Cuba opening sure a democrat would pick that up too so you realize this is all a continuum and what matters is the overall direction of things it's not settled on any one election so you're hopeful I am hopeful
1: Ben Rhodes, congratulations again on the book, which continues to do great, The World As It Is, much better titled yeah. than As the World Turns. Yeah, yeah, With General <laughs> Hospital. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Pete. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this special bonus, you'll hear the job advice President Obama gave to Ben Rhodes, his feelings on the personal relationship approach to foreign policy, and the pressure he felt as a white kid from the Upper East Side writing for America's first black president. To hear that and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, subscribe now at cafe.com slash insider. You know, sometimes at the end of the show, we don't need to talk about politics or news or something that's either upsetting or controversial. Sometimes we can just talk about music. And I was struck in the interview with Ben Rhodes, how he talked about his conversation with Barack Obama and about Ray Charles and his version of America the Beautiful, and how, presumably, President Obama was kind of joking, that should be America's anthem. I take no position on that point of view. I thought we'd leave you with a few notes from Ray Charles, America the Beautiful. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ben Rhodes. America. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. I take security seriously. In fact, it used to be my full-time job to think about safety, and that didn't stop when I went home at the end of a long day. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24/7 monitoring for a fraction of the cost. Visit simplysafe.com/preet, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. So go now to simplysafe.com/preet, so they know we sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet.